Good morning, Grace Point. It is so good to have you with us today. And today is a significant day in the Christian calendar. Today is Palm Sunday. It begins what is known as Holy Week, where the, the story of Jesus plays out and the conflicts he had in Jerusalem with the temple authorities and the Roman authorities. And the week ends with Jesus being executed on a Roman cross. And when that happened, for Jesus' first followers, the people who followed him into the city, who believed that change was coming, who believed that he was going to be the person that would kick out the Romans and would bring independence and freedom and peace like never before. And instead of all that happening, Jesus ends up naked and bleeding and dying on a Roman cross. This threw them a major curveball. Because in Jesus' world, in the tradition Jesus was a part of, they were expecting a figure, a messianic figure, somebody who would come and be the leader of the revolution. And there were people who came before Jesus who um, said that they think that they were that person or somebody thought they were, and they were executed. There were people after Jesus who led uprisings and were proclaimed Messiah, and they were executed. And that's kind of the giveaway. If your Messiah candidate dies, if he's executed by the empire, then you know that that's not the Messiah. And yet something happens in the Jesus story. He's executed by the empire. And then three days later on Easter, the news gets disseminated that he's not there, that he's been raised up, that he's out, he's gonna be doing something in the world. And that experience transformed. Usually a messianic figure dies, the disciples that they have, the followers, they disperse and they go about their business. These followers ended up spreading a message throughout the entire known world about this particular messianic would-be Messiah figure. And so the Jesus story transformed their understanding of what kind of figure they were waiting on. And it actually transformed their understanding of what a cross meant. So for the early Christians, the cross would have been before Jesus, before Easter, because their understanding of this all developed after Easter. Before Easter, the cross would have been the equivalent of like when we wear it around our necks, it would be the equivalent of wearing an electric chair around your neck, right? It's not something you would celebrate. It's not a symbol that you would want to hold on to. And yet after Easter, um, something happened that they began, it transformed their understanding of the cross so much so that one early Christian writer who was well-known and had a major influence on the movement, a guy named Paul, he actually would sum up his Jesus story in two words. Christ crucified. That's how he talked about it. That's how he talked about the Jesus story. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, he says this to this community in Corinth. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come preaching God's secrets to you like I was an expert in speech or wisdom. I had made up my mind not to think about anything while I was with you except Jesus Christ and to preach him as crucified. Something happens that transforms their understanding of what Jesus' death was. It began with disciples on a road to Emmaus saying, gosh, we thought he was the one and being heartbroken that he's dead and gone. And then a short time later, you, you have this guy Paul going, yeah, I, I resolved to know nothing else but Jesus crucified, Christ crucified. So I, I, after that moment, though, after the Easter moment, nobody was sitting around developing theologies. Everybody was out doing stuff. They're, they were actually just making it up as they went along. But after some time passed, people began to wonder, okay, but what does Jesus' death mean? Because it happened, and then he was raised up. But what do we do with that? What does the death has to mean something? So they'd ask questions like, what does Jesus' death mean? Uh, what did it accomplish? Did it accomplish something? 
How does it actually work if it did? How does the death of Jesus work to accomplish a thing? And when you're talking about that, you are fully immersed in the world of atonement theology. Atonement essentially is a word that literally means to cover over, but it's about reconciliation, making peace where there wasn't, where peace has been broken. Um, and you may think of it like this. A lot of people say uh, in the word atonement, you can break it up into at one minute, right? It's about bringing people back together, restoring relationship. And so in atonement theory, what people are trying to do is figure out how does Jesus' death somehow repair our relationship with God? That's what the whole thing's about. And they, they came up, there are several atonement theories. There's some that are more popular than others. Um, one of the earliest uh, atonement theories, which is present in the early church, earliest church fathers, is known as the ransom theory. I don't know if you're familiar with the ransom theory, but uh, it's essentially this, they believe that uh, because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, which we learned last week actually was never called sin, whatever. So because they felt humans fell, they fell into the clutches of Satan. And in order to get them back from Satan, God has to pay a ransom to Satan. And the ransom ends up being Jesus, but spoiler alert, haha, it didn't work because God rescues us from Satan and then Jesus comes back from the dead, right? That's essentially the, like, if you want to think of it as like a, a silent movie, you know, the one where the, like the villain is tied somebody up and lays them on the train tracks and the train is coming and you're waiting for, that's sort of ransom theory uh, in a nutshell. It's this belief that somehow God is trying to pay off Satan. To, and so you can see that was an early, early church theory, um, first, second century, and, and not a lot of people hold on to that. Uh, there are others that have been developed. The Christus Victor theory of atonement believes that what happens at the cross is Jesus uh, defeats the powers uh, and principalities and shows them to be bankrupt morally. There's one that's probably the most fa fa famous and the favorite of a lot of people um, in uh, the circles I grew up in, in conservative evangelical circles, and that is the satisfaction uh, theory that also ends up morphing into penal substitutionary atonement, which means that God is so offended by our sin. We have so offended God's honor that God can't even deal with us. And honor has to be paid back, right? It's a, he, Anselm was in a feudal society, so he thought in terms of lords and serfs, and there's an honor debt, and so how does, how does God's honor get repaired? Because we damage God's honor. Well, something has to die. God must get restitution, but none of us, because we're all terrible, none of us can pay that restitution, but who can? Boom, the innocent Jesus, son of God, comes in, crucified. God's wrath is satiated by the death of Jesus. And now God can love us and accept us if we pray the right prayer and do all the right stuff, right? Now that's sort of the theory most of us grew up with. That was in the late 1000s that was developed by a guy named Anselm. At the same time, there's another guy named Abelard who believed that this theory was terrible. And he came up with a theory called the moral influence theory, which is essentially says that the cross is God, like God demonstrating God's love for the world. And that the hope is that when the world sees God's love being displayed in that way, that it will move them, transform them, and pull them closer to the divine. But here's the problem I have. Atonement is a solution without a problem. And here's what I mean. Atonement begins with the understanding that we are separated from God, that we are bad, separated, disconnected. God is over here and we're over here. And one of the things we've kind of discovered on this journey is that actually the opposite is true. We are inherently united with God. We are as connected to God as a fish is to water. There is no way to separate us from God. And so if we're going around trying to figure out how do I repair my relationship with God when I'm separated from God, it, if you're not separated, it's a solution without a problem. 
which then creates a whole other problem because this has sort of been the comfortable way people have talked about Jesus' death for years and years and years. How can we understand Jesus' death in, in a way that still makes it meaningful? Because I'll tell you, as a pastor for uh, almost 20 years, 15 of those, I was in my own sort of faith unraveling where I couldn't make sense of anything. This week that leads up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday was torture. I would rather it be a random Sunday in July than Holy Week because I didn't know what to say about it. And I think that in the progressive Christian world, we often, we, we know that we can't hold on to what our beliefs were about it before. We know we've got to let some of that go. But what do we do with it? I mean, the cross is a central piece of the Christian story. It was a two-word phrase that Paul used to sum up his entire Jesus message, Christ crucified. So what are we going to do with it? I think we actually can do some stuff with it. I think that it still has something to give. The death of Jesus is still meaningful, just not maybe in the ways that we thought. And I think we should begin here. Jesus' death was not for God. God did not need Jesus to die, right? He, why, why, why would God, why would she need Jesus to die? Can you imagine um, if um, I, you, you were to be at my house and one of my kids drops something and breaks it. And, I, and they say, dad, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but you've offended me. And now I need that restitution. So somebody's got to die. I mean, I hope you would call the authorities because that sounds crazy, right? And yet this is the God we've been taught to believe in. This God who, who needs innocent blood to be spilled to somehow be okay with us. And what's more, that doesn't actually ever pop up in the Bible. Nowhere do we really read the Bible saying, and God demands innocent blood to be spilled so God can somehow love human beings again. We got that from Anselm, not from the Bible. Jesus' death wasn't for God. Jesus was not a substitute for us. That's not what was happening. Um, Jesus wasn't, um, maybe this is the right question. Is Jesus, was Jesus' death necessary? No, Jesus' death was not necessary. Jesus' death did not somehow make you and I suddenly more lovable. Like God looked at us on Thursday and said, you guys are horrible. But on Friday, he's like, oh, okay, now you're all right. Like that's not how that worked. You have always been united with God and you have always been beloved by God. God has always embraced you. The, the message of the cross is not, oh, well, now God can finally love us again or embrace us again or have fellowship with us again. The cross is, set is a reminder. No, no, God has always embraced you. God has always been present to you. You have always lived, moved, and exist, existed in God. Jesus' death was not necessary. I actually think Jesus' death, though, was inevitable. And here's what I mean by that. You, you ride into Jerusalem at the most politically charged time of the year, Passover, where you're having a massive festival with all sorts of out-of-town people coming in to celebrate a God who liberates slaves while you are currently being oppressed by the empire and you ride into town in a sort of a, a, a mocking parade of what a Roman emperor would do or a Roman general, they would have this big uh, parade with war horses and weapons and they'd be showing their strength. And here comes Jesus on a donkey with some, some of his disciples, right? Like he, he's, he's sort of poking fun at the whole empire. And then he goes into the temple and symbolically shuts it down and judges it for instead of providing a place for wholeness and healing, it's become a hiding place for people who want to use their religion uh, against other people. And then you go challenge the leaders day after day after day. Like, I think, honestly, at the end of the week, Jesus and his disciples are, are having their last meal and it's sort of a secretive location and they slip out under the cover of dark. I mean, why does Jesus need to be betrayed? Because, I mean, I think they were trying to keep, a, uh, things were getting rough. It was, it was tough. 
People were looking for them. And I, I think there was part of them that was like, hey, let's try, to, let's try to keep a low profile to get through the weekend. And that's not exactly what happens. Was Jesus' death necessary? No, God did not need Jesus to die to love us or save us. Was Jesus' death inevitable? Yeah. When you go into Jerusalem on the most politically charged week of the year and you make claims about God's kingdom over and against Caesar's kingdom, there's one way that's gonna go. And, and Jesus struggled with that. In Gethsemane, he wept. He asked for the cup to be passed away from him to someone else. And yet he, he ends up drinking the cup. His death wasn't for God. I, I do think we often talk about Jesus' death and sin. Here's what I think. I think Jesus' death was about sin, singular. So if you were with us last week, we talked about sin, singular, and sins, plural. Sins, plural, are the, usually gets most of our attention. But sins, plural, ultimately are just symptoms of this larger thing called sin, singular. And what we sort of drilled down on last week was that this idea of sin, singular, is essentially what happens when we live beneath our good humanity. Right? Our humanity was created and called good. We are image bearers of the divine. And when we dehumanize and hate and commit acts of violence, we are below our humanity. And so we talked about sin singular as being what, what happens uh, and comes out of us when we want to dehumanize and uh, abuse and wound another human being. I think Jesus' death was exactly about that. I mean, I think if you look at the story of Jesus' death, Jesus bears dehumanization on the cross. He's been humiliated. He's been beaten up. He's hanging naked, bleeding, humiliated, defeated, dehumanized. And what does he do in return? What is Jesus' response to dehumanization? He bears it and he turns it into love and he pushes it back out. I mean, the, the prayer from the cross, Father, forgive them. This is a man being dehumanized who refuses to dehumanize his killers which means that in death, Jesus was far more alive than the people killing him. Because dehumanization and hatred and all of that stuff that goes with it, violence, it's not something that somebody who's super grounded and super, uh, feels super whole and healthy are, are gonna engage in, right? Jesus on the cross bears the dehumanization, the dehumanization that people still bear today that people who are uh, mistreated, who are ridiculed, who, who are essentially kept out because of any number of things that, that whoever the gatekeepers are says is the thing that keeps you out, right? Like there are people all over the world who still experience this demonization and Jesus does something powerful and profound. He turns that, he takes it, he absorbs it, he turns it into love and he extends it to the very people who are wounding him. There's this great line in Paul or a uh, chapter earlier than we looked before, chapter one, where he's writing to the church in Corinth and he's talking about the cross and he says this, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed, but it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. Now, when he says destroyed, what does he mean? I think we are like over-spiritualizing it. I think what he's talking about is some of the very stuff he talked to, Jesus talked about in his life before he died, that when you choose to resist violently, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And so to people who choose the path of violence and dehumanization, the cross looks like defeat. It looks foolish. It looks weak. And yet in his death, Jesus is far stronger than those who are killing him. 
The cross is this moment where Jesus reveals the absolute bankruptcy of hate, dehumanization, and, and violence. And he does so all the while not turning it and giving it back to the people who gave it to him. You know what I think ultimately has happened? I think that we have created a God in our image. And we've kind of given that God power. And in doing so, we've lost the true transformative power of the cross. The transformative power of the cross is not, um, well, think about this. Has anybody seen, uh, you can respond to me in the comments, I guess. Has anybody seen the picture of like muscled up Jesus and he's like broken the cross and now he's like standing there all muscled up and people often say, yeah, he came the first time he came like a lion. The second time he's going to come like a lamb. And that's a lion. Uh, first time a lamb, second time a lion. And here's what's interesting about that. Um, in the text in Revelation where it says, I looked and I saw the lion of the tribe of Judah. What's interesting is when they look at the lion, like when the camera, because there's a camera, when it pans over to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, it is a slain lamb. The lion is the lamb. Strength is never in beating, defeating, dehumanizing, abusing, wounding. Strength is not doing those things. And instead, even to the very people who are trying to hand them to you, turning, transforming them into love and giving it to the world. I think that's what's happening with Jesus. Jesus, you may put it like this, Jesus really does die because of sin, because of dehumanization, because of violence, because of fear, because of power, because of greed. And he, he strolls into an economic, political, religious system that is working really well for the people on the top. And he says, let's tear the whole thing down. And he gets a cross for it. Jesus doesn't die for God. God already loved you and embraced you way before that. Jesus isn't dying for all of our individual sins, but human sin, the, the dehumanization, the violence, is what puts Jesus on the cross. And I want to end with this. Like, so what do we do with the cross? What do we do with it? Um, how do we embrace it as part of a progressive Christian lens to see the world? And, and here's what I think. I think Jesus is ultimately calling us to participation. You know, so the, the line, um, when I survey the wondrous cross, the point was never to survey the wondrous cross. The point was always to pick up a cross and follow Jesus. That's what he actually says, right, to his disciples. If you want to really follow me, you want to be my disciple, grab your cross and follow me. Now, here's what I don't think he's saying. I don't think he's saying to us, we all have to go out and somehow get ourselves arrested and beaten up. I don't think that's what Jesus means. I think what the cross represents is, and of course, Jesus actually does go carry a cross and die on it, and some of his followers do too, right? So there's always a risk in there. But I think what he's ultimately saying is, is to, the work of love is hard. The work of peacemaking is hard. The work of personal transformation and societal transformation is hard. And everything in us at times seems to want to pull us in the other direction. It's so much easier to dehumanize somebody. It's so much easier to make fun of somebody. It's so much easier to lob hate at somebody than to actually enter into their story, to hear about their wounds and who they are and journey with them toward transformation. That's that's hard work. And I think when Jesus says, grab your cross, I think part of what he's saying is pick up whatever it means for you to go into the world as an agent of love. Knowing that sometimes love looks like being nailed to a cross. Knowing that you will never enter into love with 
anyone or anything that doesn't cost something. And that for Christians, that the point has never just been Jesus's cross. It's been all of our crosses. Hopefully the cross is not a doctrine to debate. It is a path to follow. It is not a theory about how we can go to heaven. But it's a practical way to bring heaven to earth. What Jesus is inviting us to, as we approach Good Friday, we rem- yes, we remember the death of Jesus, body broken, love poured, and love for the world. But we don't merely remember Jesus. We remember that for us to be on the Jesus path, to be a Christian, whatever language you want to use, to be a Christian is to be on that journey too. The cross is not Jesus's alone. It's ours. And it is far easier for us to stand back and worship Jesus than it is for us to join Jesus on the dusty path toward the cross. But according to Paul, what looks foolish is actually life. What, what looks unadvisable, right, is actually the, way, actually the way the world will be transformed. Not through our might, not through our, you know, I think I mentioned maybe last, I, mean, I can be a really sarcastic person sometimes, and sometimes things come out and people get hurt. That's not how the world's going to be changed. The world is not going to be fixed by one more witty comment from me, right? But the world will be transformed when we all take up love and carry it into the world on the Jesus path. Not because Jesus was killed by God to do something for us and we should be really grateful, but because in Jesus, we see what God is like. And we see a love that is overflowing all the categories and boxes and labels and all the the dams we build to try to hold this love back. It continually pushes through. And the question we have to ask this week, Holy Week, Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem He is journeying toward the cross. Will we journey with him? Or or will we choose another path? And our afterlife may not depend on what we choose, but this life will depend on what we choose. Will we build a life that is love lived out? Or will we keep revenge and violence and hate and dehumanization? Will we keep that in circulation? We get to choose. And and that's what the Jesus story is asking us to do, to choose. Not where we're going to spend eternity, but about how we're going to live in this world as divine image bearers of God.